Well, good morning. Well, in the fall, or toward the end of 1936, the United Kingdom went through somewhat of what they described as a constitutional crisis. If you are familiar with uh, kind of the story of the current Queen of England, Elizabeth, uh, she became queen eventually because of a rather unusual thing that happened with her dad. In 1936, uh, Queen Elizabeth's uncle was named King Edward, was the name he had chosen, and he was ruling as the King of England, but he decided he wanted to get married. But the individual he wanted to marry had been divorced twice, and because of his position, uh, not only as a king, but also as the king of England, um, being the head of the Church of England, that was not going to be allowed. So what did he do? He decided that he would, what they refer to as, abdicate the throne. King Edward decided, I'm going to get married, and in order to do so, I'm going to give up being the King of England. And there's a lot in there uh, to think about. There's a lot of story as me, as a person kind of theologically minded as well, got some questions about the King being the head of the Church of England and all sorts of things in there. But he decided that he was going to give up his position as being the King of England. And as he did so, that passed then to his brother, who became known as King George. And George stepped into that role. And for many of us, you know, we think about and talk about sometimes what it means to be like the oldest or the youngest or the middle sibling. And we have sometimes kind of like our defined things that we think about that sometimes, like in our family, uh, I'm the oldest of my siblings and my wife. Uh, is the youngest of her siblings. And we've talked about sometimes that can make for some interesting kind of personality dynamics. And uh, on more than one occasion, she's told me, I think as the oldest, sometimes I've probably never been convinced I was wrong before. And as the youngest, she's never been convinced that things should not go as she pleases, right? And that's kind of how things go. And we have sometimes those kind of roles in our families but think about here, that's nothing like what we're talking about here, right? These two grew up knowing what their roles would be from the time they were kids. He knew, his name was David, he knew when he would become of a certain age, his dad would die, he would become the king of England. His brother thought for my entire life, I'm gonna have a role, I'm gonna have some things that I do, but I will never be the king. I'm gonna be the supporter of the king. And then all of a sudden one day, his brother abdicates the throne, and he's now king of England. But also what makes that interesting is he was not necessarily in some ways really kind of positioned well for that role. As part of the royal family, a lot of what they do is, you know, speak in front of people and, and do things at events and ceremonies and uh, public things. And uh, King George was not a gifted public speaker. In fact, he had what uh, he referred to as a stammer, but he had a stutter when he would speak. And he did not like even the smallest gatherings. And he worked at it. And he actually had a man named Lionel Loge who he met with. And essentially was kind of a, a, a voice coat and kind of helping overcome this uh, speech impediment, this, this stammer that he had. But that was kind of seemed important when he was, you know, like supporting the king. But now he is the king of England. And when we think about the time that that happened in December 1936, uh, we are heading into World War II, right? So this is a time where he knew to be the king, he had to be able to speak confidently and with assurance to the people 
of England. So he began working on this again. And there's actually a movie even made about this called The King's Speech, where he's working in the end, particularly toward this one address he knew he would have to give to the nation as England was declaring war on Germany. We think about those things, right? You know, something big happens and there is a presidential address, right? Like you want to hear from your leader and you don't want to hear someone that even because of whatever he knew, he had to be able to project strength and assurance and confidence. Uh, and just this sense, he knew he, what he needed to be. And so he worked at it. And spoiler, if you haven't seen the movie, it's 10 years old, don't feel bad for saying that. He did a good job, right? So he, he did, he worked at it. He overcame, he was able to, through this effort and through striving and through training, he was able to step up into the role that he knew that he needed to be, what he needed to be. And the reason I tell you this is, well, I like history things and so sure there's that, but also as we spend the next few weeks talking about the life of a believer. Last week, Pastor Nate talked about what it means to profess faith and trust Christ and to follow him. And this week, uh, the, the task we have is to talk about what it means for how we live as a Christian. Essentially, what we said is, what does a Christian do? How are we to live? And we're gonna get to that in a minute, but I want us to know we are doing so from a particular position. And and the reason we mentioned King George is I want you to think about this way. From the moment his brother abdicated the throne, he, they went through their ceremonies and he became the king. He positionally, he was the king, right? No matter how bad he did at it, he was the king. But he knew to be the man he needed, to, to fulfill the role as he needed to do, he needed to become the king. He held the position, but he needed to become the man. And in many ways, that is what we're gonna talk about for us today as believers, what we do. Because last week, if we are in a place where we have professed faith in Christ, if we have said we are trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our place, what uh, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Martin Luther in the 1500s, German monk, he called the great exchange when Jesus is going to take our sinful, broken, messed up lives and he's going to exchange it for his perfect, righteous, sinless life. He's going to give the, he's going to exchange those two things. And we positionally, if we have professed faith in Christ, we stand before God is redeemed sons and daughters, saints is what scripture says. Again, have you ever read that like in the letters, especially of Paul, where he writes and he's like, to the saints at Ephesus. And you're like, I don't know a lot of things, but like saint, like that sounds weird, right? But no, positionally, we are saints, forgiven, perfect as we stand before God. But we know as we look through our life, we are gonna take the entirety of the time that we have as a follower of Christ. We are going to grow into who we already are. And that is what we are going to do as a believer. And Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy some instruction for that. Timothy was essentially kind of an apprentice or Paul was a mentor to Timothy, teaching, discipling, and and helping him grow as the leader and a follower of Christ. And we're gonna look at some of the words that Paul gives to Timothy to tell him how he is supposed to live, what he is supposed to do as a believer. We're gonna find that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to see, as a believer, how we become essentially who we already are. So we're going to read in just a moment, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Uh, We're going to read that together, and then I'm going to pray for us and pray for our time in the Word together, and then we'll jump in. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting 
in verse six. Paul writes, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So let's pray and we'll, we'll jump into this text together. God, we pray for our time together this morning as we open up your word, as we gather around it and to look to what you have to say. God, would you speak to us today? Where we need it, would you encourage us? God, where we need it, would you challenge and convict us? God, as we look at what your, what your scriptures say to us this morning, God, what we need to know, would you teach us? What we need to become, would you make us? And God, would we just love and follow you more? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is going to give Timothy some instruction for how he is supposed to be living. In fact, this comes in the midst of the book, first in 2 Timothy and Titus, or what we refer to as the pastoral epistles. Timothy was a young leader in the church and Paul is writing to him and he's telling him how he is to live and how he is to lead and is encouraging him in this task. But also this section uh, is for all believers. This is how all of us should be living and pursuing Christ together. So he's going to tell them, he's going to give them a couple of things he wants them to do. But first, he's going to tell them all of this, I'm going to say, starts with the foundation that Timothy already has. Because he told him in verse 6, he says, uh, tell him here, if you put these things before the brothers, going back to uh, the first few verses of the chapter, talking about false teaching and doctrine that was around, he's telling him essentially, uh, tell others, teach others not to follow that way. But he tells them, you'll be a good servant. You're being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. So this isn't new to Timothy. Timothy is established in the faith, even though he's young. And, and Paul is going to tell him essentially a minute, pursue Christ, pursue godliness, but you're gonna do so from a foundation that you have, that you were given already. That he said, you've already been doing those things. You have followed the words of faith, essentially the message of the gospel. Christ's life, death, and resurrection are our place, what it means to come to faith. He says, Timothy, you've been following that and good doctrine. You've been taught about who God is and what the scripture teaches. And where did he learn that? Did he learn it from Paul? Yes, he will eventually. But what Paul is talking about here is Timothy had a foundation that was given to him by his family. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, when he's opening that letter, he writes uh, to Timothy in verse five, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So he's telling him, he's telling Timothy, you are going to grow, you're going to train for godliness as we can get to a minute, but you're gonna do so from a foundation of faith that you already have. He's encouraging him to continue in the work that his grandmother and mother had already done. The reason I bring this up is it's the foundation for what he's gonna say, but I think it's also a good encouragement for many of us. If you are a parent or a grandparent to consider 
the, the task that you've been given with your kids and with your family is not unimportant. And sometimes it seems difficult and is it really doing a whole lot? Maybe even, hey, I'm, 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 I'm taking my kids to church. I'm, I'm reading the scriptures with my kids. I'm singing a song or saying short prayers with them. I'm doing all these things to encourage them in the faith. Is it really doing a lot? And I think here we see an example of it is, it lays the foundation for them to continue to grow in godliness. Or what one author, a guy named Philip Ryken, said about this verse, he says, all of this shows the necessity of good teaching in the home. A good upbringing is worth years of seminary. It prepares sons and daughters of the church to become good servants in every walk of life. It will make them good neighbors, citizens, artists, professionals, laborers, school teachers, parents, missionaries, and ministers. So he says here is what Paul is wanting to establish is Timothy. He has a foundation of the words and faith and the good doctrine. And for us, I think it's a good reminder to continue in the work, to do that with our families, is what Philip Reichen said, a growing up and a good upbringing is worth years of seminary. And I'm a, I'm a fan of seminary. If you know me, you won't take that long. I think right now I'm in my like 10th year of it, okay? Like I, I just, I love doing that. But sitting in classes and gaining things and learning and reading books is not what, he says, we, I would give up years of that for parents and grandparents and people in our life to point us to Christ on a regular basis. And for us, just a, a brief reminder as we're going to remember the importance of that work and to establish that foundation. And he continues on, he tells him in verse seven, so with that foundation in mind, he warns Timothy, have nothing to do with the irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So he tells him, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. There was kind of teachings and doctrines and things going around uh, that were just, were false. And Paul would have spent the first few verses of the chapter warning against false teaching. And he's telling Timothy, don't get wrapped up in those things. Don't pursue those things. Don't follow after those. And for us, they had their own, but I don't think, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that because I don't think many of us need a lot of reminder of what potentially some false teaching and irreverent silly myths might be of our day. We have them around us too. In the same way that he tells Timothy, Paul would tell us, do not have nothing to do with them. It's not like, hey, there's some things we can learn and we can really be kind of essentially discipled in, grow in, out you know, in these irreverently met, like let's, let's kind of, there's some good here and some good in the things of God. No, he said, have nothing to do with them. Put them away, but instead to pursue godliness or what he says here, train yourself for godliness. In fact, this word godliness essentially so you know ahead of time, is the essence of what we're gonna talk about this morning. In fact, this word godliness occurs 15 times throughout the New Testament, nine of them in this one letter that Paul writes in 1 Timothy. It is the central theme that what he is going to encourage Timothy to do is to pursue and to train yourself for godliness. That's what we are to be doing as believers. When we think about we have professed faith, what do we do? What we do is we pursue and train ourselves for godliness. We follow after Christ. We become more like him. And that's gonna have a lot of kind of things, that, implications for how we live. And we'll talk about some of those over the next three weeks. But what is the central goal? What is the central motivation for a believer? It's to pursue godliness. 
What one pastor uh, in the 1500s, John Calvin, one of the reformers, he says, godliness is the beginning, middle, and end of Christian living. That is our pursuit as believers. That is what we do. We pursue godliness. And Paul's going to use this analogy to talk about how we do that. If you read through Paul, sometimes he'll kind of turn and he'll like make an, uh, all of a sudden he'll kind of like make an analogy to like an athlete or a sport or here he says bodily training or to farmers. You know, you read some of those things. He's like, he uses, you know, like an illustration of farming. And I'm like, I don't know, like I'm not a farmer. Um, but, you know, here uh, we got, so we got to figure out what he means with those for these. I think it's, it's a pretty clear illustration. That I think most of us can understand and relate to. So he tells him, he says, train yourself for godliness. What's that word? Train yourself, work, strive, grow in it. He says, for while bodily training is of some value. So he's kind of parentheses, bodily training. Essentially, in that time, and like ours, there were people in their culture who would dedicate themselves toward athletic training. There was particularly a couple years of um, the lives where they would really dedicate and just give their life toward physical training and sport. And even in that time, they have sports and we think about the Olympics and kind of the history going back into Greek culture. And for many of us, that's not hard to really understand what he means when he says, train yourself for godliness for a while bodily training is some value. When he's talking about that, just so we're clear, he's not really talking about like me going out on my 20 to 30 minute jog on a Saturday. You know, like we enjoy those things. Um, you know, sometimes we think about, and, and that is of good value. But the picture he's giving here is someone who dedicates their life to bodily training. For us, it would kind of give the image of many of the kind of the professional athletes we see around us. One of my favorite examples of that is a man named Michael Phelps. Anybody know him? A great swimmer, right? If you don't know, if you watch, he kind of, you know, those sports are difficult too because, you know, you think about being an Olympic swimmer and you get like your shot and it's not like, oh man, we didn't do good. Like we get next year. No, I get it in four years, right? So he's got to wait four years every time these things came up. But Michael Phelps was actually the most decorated Olympian ever. He earned 28 medals, 23 of them gold medals. And by the way, Olympian, like that's a long history, right? That's not like, hey, he did good, you know, and the, but he is one of the most decorated Olympian ever. And he pursued his craft of swimming with just a dedication and fervor to it. He trained, I was reading this description of what he would do during the seasons, he would train for upwards of six hours a day. So when I say it's not like, hey, bodily training, like making this effort, what Paul's saying here, he's talking about someone who dedicates their life to it. And he's talking about he, all the training he would do and all that. In case you ever know, like swimming is hard work too. Like we think about sometimes like jumping in a pool and splashing around. Um, I, uh, over a little while, uh, a few years back with some family, did a couple of half Ironman races and you start with like a one mile swim and you do a 56 mile bike ride and then a half marathon. I would trade the half marathon for the one mile swim, right? Like swimming 45 minutes was just so hard to me compared to running for a couple hours. Like it's difficult, it's hard work. Work. And he would do that for up to six hours a day. And now I read about, what do you do? How do you maintain that kind of pursuit? And I read this one article, it was talking about how much he ate. And it's like, you may have heard like some kind of crazy rumors that Michael Phelps ate uh, 12,000, consumed 12,000 calories a day. And they're like, that's an exaggeration. It was only 10,000. And I'm like, okay, well, 10,000 is a lot of food. He would eat that much just to be able to keep up with the training he was doing. 
And I think sometimes, you know, like we think, you know, sometimes you see those like lists of calories in restaurants. You're like, I don't want to know, you know, especially when you get like certain foods and you see, but like, just so we're clear, eating 10,000 calories a day, it takes effort. It's not like, I mean, like, you know, some days maybe we're up for a challenge, but like to do that every day, he talks about like, it was actually work to do that. And he talked about during his peak swimming days, he said he was just relentless on his focus to be the best. He says, I would eat, sleep, and swim. That's all I can do. He said, and sometimes I would try to get in some calories in my system and just try to recover the best I can. But that is what his life revolved around, eat, sleep, and swim. And, and we were talking about this week, you, you see kind of the result of that. There's a picture um, of him standing with like his arms out and all his medals draped across him. And I was telling the first service, I was like, yeah, you see that? And I thought, yeah, you could see just the picture of what he accomplished during that. But if you've ever seen Olympic athletes in their swimming attire, we can't show that picture um, and what it looks like. So I think we have one that they made. They photoshopped it for me. All right. So we, we gave him a shirt and some bigger shorts. All right. But you know, so he's got just that picture of what he has accomplished. That's a picture of what Paul's saying. When he says bodily training is of some value. There's benefit to it. It can be good. It can get you a lot of medals. But what he wants him to know, he says, yes, there is value to do that. He said, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So why would Paul use that illustration? Why would he talk about that there is some value to it? Because I think what he wants us to see is the way that that kind of athlete, the way someone pursuing that kind of training dedicates their life to a singular task and everything else in life is gonna revolve around it. If I wanted to go ask Michael Phelps in the peak of his swimming career, somehow I know Michael, right? Like we're gonna go, hey, you wanna go hang out later today? You wanna go eat? Listen, you wanna go to a movie together? Do you think that our little task, it, it, what, what's gonna take priority in his life and his day? It's his goal, it's his training. It's what he's working on, what he's seeking to accomplish. And I think what we would ask ourselves is, as believers, is the pursuit of godliness the singular thing that everything else revolves around? Is the pursuit of godliness, is that what determines what kind of student we are, what kind of employee we are, what kind of spouse we are, or parent we are, how we spend our time, where we live, what we do, everything about our life, is that what determines it? Or is it kind of like a good thing that we wanna do in addition to all the other things that we are dedicating ourselves to? I think what Paul would say is, put away other things, dedicate, train yourself for godliness. It is what has ultimate value. And sometimes we think, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? How do I train myself for godliness? In some ways, that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like habits and routines. And some of us love those things and some of us don't. But I would say, in essence, it is a lot of those things. It is the habits of our life, it is the routines of our day is what we give ourselves to. And there's a lot of great resources for that. If you're, if you're interested, there's what sometimes we refer to as habits and disciplines. There's we refer to when we think about the, the work of training ourselves for godliness, we refer to as the spiritual disciplines. They're not rocket science, they're not difficult. It's things like studying the scriptures, praying, attending worship with other believers, serving other people, a generous spirit. There's lots of different 
things in there. One of the best resources you can find for that is a book called The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by a man named Donald Whitney. There's another book too that is especially those if you have uh, kids any age but still in your home called Habits of the Household by a guy named Justin Early. And he walks through and talks about just what are the habits of our day? How do we rise in the morning? How do we go to sleep with our families at night? How we spend our meal time, our time in the cars? Or what are we giving ourselves to as a family? And help us think through those things. But what it looks like, and one of the pictures of that I think we can see in Psalm 119, of what it means to pursue godliness and to train ourselves for it and the, the kind of motivation and attitude we have behind it. We're going to read all of Psalm 119, if you're familiar with it. It's the longest chapter of the Bible. So we're going to take just a couple of verses out of it. But in verse 9, the psalmist writes, How can a man keep his way pure? So when we're talking about godliness, Christ-likeness, that's what, how do we keep our way pure? It says, By guarding it according to your word. It says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your way. I delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. That is a person who loves the Lord and is pursuing that. And just the things that he's talking about in here, how he keeps his way pure. For, he says, guarded according to your word. When I look at the way I live and things I'm doing, I am measuring it and guarding it according to what the scripture is teaching me. He says, with my whole heart, I'm seeking you. And he's pleading with the Lord, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. He is dedicating himself to knowing the scripture and to memorizing it and to saying that will keep me knowing what is good and what is right. He says that I might not sin against you. But just the, think about the, the way the psalmist is speaking and how this can feel different from us at times. Where he says, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. And with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Do we think that way? The rules of God, the way he commands and the things he's told us how to live. And he would say, I declare them uh, with my lips. I'm excited about them. He says, I meditate on your precepts in my eyes. I fix them on your way. He says, your testimonies in verse 14, I delight as much as in all riches. Just the things of God, the psalmist is saying, I give myself to them. I pursue them. I know them. I study the word. I spend time with God. I'm following after him and it makes my heart desire him more. For us, is that how we live? Is that how we set our lives mentioned doing a couple uh, half Ironmans a couple years back, and uh, some of our family had decided to really um, get a guy to kind of help figure out how to do that. There's a lot of you know, parts of that. You got to swim, you got to run, you got to bike, and you got to figure out how to do all those things. Um, and here, just to be clear, I lived in South Carolina at the time. Here, you see like little people, you see people like in their groups riding bikes all the time. Uh, that was not how it was where I lived there. It felt like a kind of crazy endeavor. Um, got chased by more than one dog out on some streets out in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina. 
Um, but this guy, we had a coach who like set up our a schedule for us and it was online. And uh, it actually like, you know, this is when technology, I felt like, oh, it gets me. So we'd have a watch, you know, you got like a little watch that tracks your training. It would load up online and he could look at it and he would set like, hey, here's your plan for the week. And if you did really good, it would, it would show green. If you did kind of okay, it would show yellow. If you didn't do it or didn't do it as you're supposed to, it would show red. And they'd show your whole calendar and it'd be like green, yellow, red. And it was like, you, know, you just, there's something about me. I was like, I want no red, you know, like yellow is bad. I don't even want any of that. I want all green. I want to show success in here. And when I'm looking at that, I would see that calendar and that would dictate some of my schedule. For us, does the pursuit and the training of godliness, does it dictate our lives? Or is it something we think we'll try to find some time here or there? And Paul tells us that this is of ultimate value. This is a promise for the present life and for the life to come. And I think for many of us, we even get the idea that the pursuit of godliness and, and putting away sin in our life and living as how we're supposed to, we can understand how that has value for like eternal things, right? But also Paul tells us as a reminder that it has value for this present life as well. I think sometimes one of the things that we can be tempted to believe is that I'm going to live in a certain way because I'm, I'm wanting to do the right thing for kind of eternal things, but I really kind of like, but it seems like I'm doing so at the sacrifice of what's best now. Like I think, like, I know I've got to do these things, but like, I would really prefer to live my own way. I would really be able to pursue this or that, or I, there's things in my life that I know God says I shouldn't do, but it seems like it would really be best for me. Like, I, that's really what I want. I think it's a reminder for us that godliness is, is good. It has value for the life to come, for eternal things. But it also has value for this present life as well. The things of God, the commands, instructions, the way he has laid out life for us to live is what is good and best. God's not sitting there saying, hey, I know that this would be better, but like, I'm gonna see if they'll not do it because I tell them to. He says that because he desires what is good and best for us. It, training in the pursuit of godliness holds promise, he says, for this present life. In the verse nine, it says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, in verse 10, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And what Paul is telling us here is, yes, we toil, we strive, we work, we give effort, we diligently dedicate ourselves to these things. He says, and we're able to do so because our hope is set on the living God, the savior of all, especially those who believe. What Paul tells us here is in the beginning, he gives in verse six, the foundation for Timothy's pursuit of godliness, how his parents and his grandparents had taught him and trained him, instructed him. But in verse 10, in the middle of that, he also gives the motivation that Timothy has for godliness. He's able to do so because he has his eyes, he has his life, has all of his hope set on the living God. Timothy knows, and what, what Paul is telling him is, yes, you can work, you can strive, you can give effort because you keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Because you want to be more like him. That is what our motivation is, to say, I love the Lord. He has been incredibly good. He is, he is good, and I want to live as he's told me to live, and I'm gonna give myself to that. I'm gonna strive. I'm gonna train and dedicate myself to godliness because of the goodness of God, and he is my savior. 
But also that is a reminder for us that if we are attempting to train ourselves to live in a certain way, thinking that if we haven't given our lives to Christ, if we have not believed and trusted him for salvation, but we're just gonna live in certain ways that we believe or what God says, if we're gonna just work really hard and we're going to earn our position before God, we can never do it. But one author talking about this verse, he referred to it, kind of used the analogy of our passport. Many of you, if you ever, uh, you know, you get out your passport and it's got your picture and sometimes that picture can be a long time ago, you know, or really recent or, you know, sometimes you've been somewhere, they're like squinting, like, is that really you? You know, um, if it's been a while. And really, you know, but a few years back, we were on a trip uh, to go work with some missionaries in Kenya. And we were going through and they canceled a flight and we had a new, um, we had a layover. Uh, There's gonna be for seven hours in the London airport. And we were supposed to fly. If you know, if you go somewhere like into Kenya, like you know you gotta fly overnight once and that sounds bad enough. But we were supposed to do that and get on another plane, do two eight hour flights back to back and land at about 7 p.m. But we had a flight change and some delays and actually sent us from Charlotte to Texas and then Texas to Europe. I was like, we're going the wrong way. You know, like that's not really, I was like, why are we doing that? This is not right. In fact, we were telling our team, like we were getting ready to leave and go to the airport together when we found out the flights were canceled. I was like, okay, they got, they got rebooked. We're gonna fly from here. We're gonna fly to Houston. And I saw their eyes. They're doing like geography. They're like, this is not right. And uh, so we, we ended up with a seven hour layover in London. And we happened to know some friends who were serving with the International Mission Board at the time. So they said, hey, leave the airport, go have lunch with us. We'll meet you there. We'll take you somewhere. And we're able to do so, but when you leave, you still got to show your passport to, to get out into the city of London. And this one guy, everybody else is handing him and he's moving quick. Like everybody else is moving through, like, oh, Glenn, yeah, you're fine, keep going. He's like staring at mine. And he starts asking me questions and examining me. And I'm getting really nervous. I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm still nervous, right? Like, is this going to go? You know, everybody else has already started leaving. And eventually, finally, for whatever reason, rather begrudgingly, he lets me go through. And with the analogy this author used to what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy, he says if you're looking, he uses that analogy of passport. It says if you're giving and saying, hey, I get to pass through here because man, I've lived really, really good. I've dedicated myself to certain things. I've pursued the right way to live and that should get me in to the acceptance of God. That will never get us through. He said if we look and essentially the analogy used is our passport just says, I have stand in the position of redeemed son or daughter through the person and work of Christ. That is the only way we get in. So what Paul tells us is that we are gonna struggle, we are gonna strive, we are gonna toil and work hard, but the, that effort is not gaining us our salvation. That effort is coming from our salvation. We are working as individuals who have been saved and redeemed, and now we train and pursue godliness. But he also gives one last little warning toward the end of the chapter where he tells us here that Christ, he says, you know, we're gonna toil and strive. So we have hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. And just to be clear to you, when he says here, the savior of all, he is not meaning that everyone is saved regardless of whether or not they profess faith in Christ. What he's saying here is Jesus stands as the singular savior for all people. The only way to find salvation is through Christ. 
When he says, especially those who believe, it also be to be precise or in other words. So Jesus is the singular savior and to be precise, he is the savior of those who believe. So Paul is reminding him that his salvation is found in Christ. We're going to continue to strive and train ourselves for godliness. But he also gives him a last warning in verse 16. He says, in the middle of doing that, as we work as believers, as we strive and train, he tells them in 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So when Paul tells Timothy here, he tells him, keep a close watch, to keep an eye out, to keep a lookout, is essentially is what he's telling him. And we'll get to a minute what he's telling him to watch out for. But when I was thinking about this week, we were kind of talking through our summer recently. And, you know, it's kind of wrapped up. Uh, like our kids start back school this week and some of the kids started back last week. And some of you who go to Iowa schools, you've got like two solid weeks when everybody else is in school. So enjoy that. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the summer and all these things we've been doing is, is kind of coming to a close and wrapping it up. One of the things we, got, we did this year is we typically go away for a, a vacation with my family and with Ashley's family. And this year, they happen to line up both in the month of July and both at the same place, which is not normally how things happen. But we went to Ocean Isle Beach and we were there for a week. We came home for a week and we went back for a week. And our kids were starting to think that they lived in Ocean Isle, I think. Like they loved it. They told us at one point, they're like, we're so sad to leave. I was like, well, yeah, you spent half of July there. And we get it, yeah, but it's time for reality, right? You gotta go home. Uh, but we you know, had a great time. We loved doing that. You know, both of them had other cousins. And the first time we were there uh, was with my family and my brother and sister and their kids. And when we get together, there are eight kids, eight and under, right? So that's a lot of little kids running around. And they're, they're getting ready. We go to the beach. And if some of you have small kids and are thinking about going to the beach, or if you have grandkids and you've helped that, or maybe even you're just remembering this little bit of a nightmarish process in your mind right now, think about all the things you pack and all the, you know, like we've got carts and, uh, you know, like coolers and chairs and just toys. And it's like all this stuff we got to get out there. And we were going out there one day and this guy actually passed us and he helped, offered to help me carry uh, this little beach wagon out going like up these stairs. We had to go. And because he felt sympathy for me, he watched it and he said he remembered. And then another guy walked by and he said, hey, it's like the great migration as we watch all of you guys go out to the beach. And, you know, just all these things loaded. And we're at least thankful our kids are four and seven. So we've passed the time where we spend like 75 minutes to get there, to stay there for 13 minutes before we got to go home. Like they at least can hang for hours on end, which is good. You know, we're doing that and we're going to Ocean Isle. We're actually reading right before we get there. Ocean Isle has like some strict rules now. Like you can have an umbrella out of the beach or you can have one particular kind of tent really. And they, they, they kind of uh, write the rule like it sounds like it could be, but it's really one brand sells the exact thing that they're talking about. But they're right. It's got to be one continuous pole and flapping fabric behind it. And there's this one brand who sells these and you go and it looks like an ad every time you're out there for this one company as these things are just like dozens of them everywhere. And we had that and we go and we're setting it up on the beach and it takes only a couple of minutes. And we told our kids, hang out right here in front of us and play while we set this up. And we did so, get a chair, you know, like sweating profusely after being out there for like four minutes and sit down in a chair, look out to the beach. And I'm like, all right, there's a kid, you know, like we want to see where are all eight or how many are there, but I'm particularly looking for two, right? Mine, our seven and four-year-old. I see our seven-year-old 
I started looking. I was like, where's Haven? Where's our four-year-old? I'm looking, I'm looking, looking. We don't see her. Ask us. Hey, do you, nobody sees her. We walk down to our kids. Where's Haven? They're like, I don't know. You know, like I'm playing in the sand. I'm happy here. I wasn't, and she, we haven't seen her. So we're walking. We, we don't see her anywhere near water. It's obviously beats first place. We're looking kind of concerned about it. You don't see, and we had told her again and again, like you don't go to the water by yourself and all these things. We don't see her. So the only thing we can think to do is turn left and start going down the beach, start walking and looking and trying to figure out where she's at. And there's just people everywhere. And then after a while, uh, a, a few moments, a few moments, but like years, um, some guy says, hey, tell us, are y'all looking for a little girl? We're like, yes, we are. Um, he says, she's that way. And I look and I see her and she, my, our daughter, by the way, like her favorite hobby in the world is to change clothes. Um, at four, like she'll be, she'll get home and she'll be like, hey, I'm wearing pajamas. And five minutes later, here, pajamas and swimsuits. That's her thing. And so like seen her in those, but like the little swimsuit she had on right now is like etched into my memory forever, I think. Cause you see her right there, run to her, don't care anything about, you know, like we're not calmly walking it. Like I'm running to her, get her and start coming back and just kind of talk to her like, hey, where, where'd you go, Avon? What happened here? And she was like, well, since I got like a few feet down the beach and I turned to look to see where you guys were at and I see the tent, but it's not you guys. And I go to the next tent and it's still not you guys. And I go to the next tent and she just kind of kept on because everything looks the same. And so she kept looking and watching and like, she's just kind of happily walking down the beach, like not them. And we move on and she keeps going and going. And believe me, after that point, like, 47 times every hour, we told her the monument to look for at the beach, not the tent, because, you know, but like, look for this tower. Uh, and we find her, and we're, you know, just terrified. And we, we, we find out where she's at. Why do I tell you, like, one of my, you know, what it feels like worst parenting moments of my life? First, I told this during a staff meeting, and it was like instantly like, oh, well, you should see what happened to us, you know? And so we start sharing these sort of things. There are stories of, amusement parks and stores and pools and elevators and kids going on elevators by themselves um, out of hotel rooms. There's lots of things. But why I tell you that is because we all have, many of us as parents, if not all, have some sort of reminder, some sort of incident that gets that just gut, anxious, terrified feeling that we had that day. And what I want us to think is when Paul tells us to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, he's not talking about just kind of idly knowing what's going on. He's telling us that we have to be diligent and give ourselves to without fail, keep our gaze set on how we're living and what we're believing. Just like it, the beats there for just a moment got distracted by something not bad, not good, just setting up for a day. Being distracted for just a moment led to one of the scariest things that we could imagine. And for life, for the life of a believer, we cannot take that kind of path. We must keep our watch. As he says, keep our focus, keep our eyes out to how we're living and what we're believing because that's what Paul's been talking about to Timothy, striving and training ourselves for godliness, living in the right way, not allowing sin 
to be creeping up. And it's not passive. It's not something that we just kind of sit back and do. In fact, one of the, uh, the Puritans in kind of a couple hundred years ago, in American uh, Puritans, they had a phrase where they would say, one of them, John Owen, he said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. He said, those are the two options. We must be diligently pursuing godliness and putting away sin or it will be creeping up into our lives. We also must continuously watch what we're believing because Paul knew here that Timothy, there was lots of false teachings and silliness and things that were trying to grab him and bringing him away from the godly instruction he had been given. He says, you have to keep a close watch on yourself. You must diligently watch how you're living and what you're believing. We cannot get distracted as believers. It is a continuous work. But it's also not a work done by ourselves. Kind of the unsung hero of that story. It was the guy who was watching and pointed us toward our daughter. I also say, if you're ever at the beach and you see someone look like they're wondering, he was the only one who helped out at the moment. So we appreciate him. But he told us, he said, hey, I saw her and just didn't look. He said, I didn't want to scare her. So I just kind of didn't go talk to her. But I was, I was going to watch. I was going to see what's going on and, until I knew that she was with who she was supposed to be. In that moment, we needed someone else's help for believers, there will be times as we are going through life, we don't do it by ourselves, but we need other people in our life too to say, that's where you're supposed to be going. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's how you're supposed to be living. This is what you're supposed to be believing. And we must keep our attention, our focus on our life, how we're living and what we're believing. And Paul tells us in another place in Romans chapter eight, where he tells us, you know, this, this seems difficult it can be hard. There can be times as believers when we are training and pursuing godliness that we feel like we're doing really well, things are going well. And there's other times where we feel like it's difficult and it's frustration. And going back to my calendar earlier, I feel like there's a lot more red marks on my calendar than green marks, right? Like I'm just struggling. And, and even though I'm making effort, I feel like I'm struggling with it. But Paul tells us, and he reminds us, just like he said in Timothy, that we are to keep our eyes set on Christ. He tells us in Romans chapter eight, that our hope is not in our ability to continue, but our hope is in the mercy and grace of God. He tells them in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what Paul's telling him, he says, those whom he foreknew, those whom he was going to call and those whom were going to come to salvation and to believe and were gonna put their faith in Christ, he says, they will be conformed to the image of the Son. He says, it, it's a promise of God. It's not a, this might, this will happen. You will be conformed to the image of the Son. And he tells him in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those who are justified, those who've been made right before God, a Christian, a follower of Christ, he says, yes, essentially it will be difficult, but there is a promise from God. The one who began this, the one who brought you to salvation, he will bring that work to completion. He says, you will be glorified when we are with Christ and all things are made as they should be. That is our promise that we have as we work, as we strive, as we train ourselves for godliness and for Christ-like living, that God says he will bring us to glorification. So for us, what does that mean for us? How we live when we think about in the next few weeks, some, some ways that we do this together. But as a believer, 
We said earlier, just like King George, we stand in the position of redeemed son or daughter of God. And now, collectively, together, not on our own, but together, we are going to spend the rest of our lives becoming who we already are. So as we do that alongside each other, as we pursue and train and give ourselves to following after godliness, let's do it alongside each other with our eyes fixed on Christ. What Paul tells us is our living hope. And we know we have that promise that one day as we do so, everything will be made right and we will be conformed to the image of his son. So in the meantime, let's pursue, let's train, let's give ourselves, let's set all of our life around the effort, around the work of pursuing godliness together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy and grace that you've shown to us. And God, even as we talk about effort and work and striving as a believer, training ourselves, giving ourselves to things, God, we know that we do all of that first and foremost from a position of redeemed son and daughters of the sovereign creator of the universe. That we stand and we do all this, we live this life as a believer because we have our eyes fixed and set on you. So God, even as we spend a moment now, would we just sing together, we remember and just celebrate your goodness and your grace together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.